0: Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll
1: tell you why. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for fifty percent off. Visit RosettaStone.com/slash/StarTalk. That's fifty percent off unlimited access to twenty-five language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your fifty percent off at RosettaStone.com/slash/StarTalk today.
2: Welcome. Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. Welcome to the Hall of the Universe. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. And tonight, we celebrate the enduring power of science fiction because we're featuring my interview with Captain Kirk himself. The actor, the American icon, William Shatner. So let's do this. Yeah. My co-host, Chuck Nice. Hey, Neil. And Charles Luke, my friend and colleague, professor of astrophysics at uh, CUNY, the City University of New York on Staten Island. So we've, we've got my interview. William Shatner came through town, yeah. so I nabbed him and stuck him in my office and grabbed that interview with the original captain of the SS Enterprise. And so I asked him, how did he find his path to that iconic role? Let's check it out.
3: I was born in Montreal. Montreal, okay. Yeah. I was in the theater and I was in radio and I was in movies and film in Canada before I came to the United States. Did you have any early sort of geeky experiences or were you sort of pure artist, actor? I was not a geek. I, I, was, uh, I was a kid actor, a child actor, and I loved sports. Okay. And I was a, a, a very experienced actor at a very early age because I started so, so When I came down to the United States in a play by Marlowe, uh, we played 12 Weeks on Broadway, and then I was essentially cast loose into the Amer- casting world. Yeah, of America. The thespian world of America, exactly. So I was a stage actor. So when I was asked to do Star Trek, ooh, they had made a pilot prior to with another actor and they asked me to see the pilot and I looked at it and I thought that was magical. They, uh, NBC wanted to recast it, so I was cast as the captain uh, in the second pilot of Star Trek and it sold. But it was, no, nobody knew what it would become by
2: any... Of course, no. Of course you, you, uh, you talk about madness. No one knew what it would become even after it was cancelled. So uh, uh, For, for years. Charles, this show... Got canceled after, It's hard to imagine.
3: Now okay? it's hard to imagine. Yeah,
2: so any yes. insight as to why it got canceled and why it would then get picked up heavily in syndication and then spawn multiple series after it?
4: I think it's because it talked about the future. But wait, wait, what, you're ready? saying it got
2: canceled because it talked about the future? Yes. Or it got
4: resurrected? Both. It, I think the answer is that Star Trek was talking about a future at a time when people were still paying attention to the present just a little too much. And then as the future came, they saw how, wow, this Star Trek thing is reflecting what the present is and what the future could be. And that's how the popularity built. I never saw a first run episode of Star Trek. It was purely from the reruns that it got me as a child to love the future.
2: I don't remember being particularly excited about it. I didn't see every episode mm-hmm. to step back. Plus, I was a kid, so a lot of the, the more mature concepts, social, cultural, ethnic concepts, uh, kind of fell beyond me. I think and, that's and right. so. But the popularity faded and then was resurrected. Yes. Yeah. And so, I, I, but you're saying people saw the future predicted and then coming to fruition, and then the show had more meaning than it did when it first came out. Is that I it?
4: think that's 100% right. And as people were looking for more optimistic views of the world, as opposed to, say, nuclear apocalypse and things like that, mm-hmm. people were really starting to see, hey, this is kind of cool.
2: Well, William Shatner, his, his sci-fi roots go actually a, a little bit deeper than Star Trek itself. And I asked him about another role that's always stuck with me, so let's check it out. My first exposure to you was the Twilight Zone. And you're looking out the window. Well, i gotta out the window. There's this, this uh, creature, creature ripping oh. apart the metal structure of right. the wing. Right. And you are freaking out. Yes. Here,
4: quickly! Okay. There's a man out there.
2: The actor has to treat that with reality. Yes, and without your convincing performance, I would have just laughed at this furry creature. All right, so now, why would that thing made so many years ago in black and white? Black and white. Why
3: does it still exist, and and you're still talking about? It? What 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 do you think is
1: the underlying principle there?
2: Chuck, why is that scene so memorable?
1: I don't know, but I'll tell you this much: I, What is the underlying principle? Behind the fact that that guy still looks younger than he should.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. He's 85 (laughs) years old. He's
1: 85 years old. I mean, he looks amazing. How does that
2: even happen? I've researched this. Go ahead. Yeah, if you add up all the time, he's traveling faster than the speed of light from (laughs) the (laughs) work Einstein's relativity, it bought him 40 years of lifetime. Chuck, you did the same calculation. I did the same calculation.
4: (laughs) But I came up with a different number than you did. That's okay. (laughs) No, I, I think the reason why this still matters... Is not because it was black and white and we look in color now, okay. but because it shows a very uh, interested desire by audiences of all ages, all periods of time, to look at mysterious things that you know you are right and somebody else can't somebody believe. Else you. Can't believe it. But here's what I'm interested in, because I remember
1: that. That, that, that Twilight Zone and episode. And I think he's, like he said, he sold
2: it. Yeah. He, he's, you believe that he saw that. Even yeah. though it's just some fuzzy dude in a suit. Yeah, well. It, he, he was terrib- He was sweating. But what I'm interested in is because
1: this guy's a regular guy in this, you know, scenario. And he's like, hey, there's a gremlin on the wing. And a regular person would see that and be like, hey, you gotta do something about this. But you two are scientists. <laughs> so what would you do
2: if you saw a gremlin on the wing of a plane, how would you handle that? I'd pull out my iPhone and take a picture. Yep. This is how we know flying saucers aren't real, because we don't have extra images of people being abducted in flying saucers, because everybody's got a video camera. You are no fun at all! <laughs> oh, <I'm just> <laughs> so here's more of my interview with American icon William Shatner about the science fiction that was portrayed in the original Star Trek. So let's, let's check it out.
3: The greatest Star Trek episodes were stories suggested by the great science fiction writers. Asimov being one, uh, the the most obvious, but there were others who had great story ideas, but they didn't know how to write a a well-made television play. So we had television writers take their great ideas and make the great Star Trek episodes. That magic of uh, science fiction and its projection into the future It's ability to try to imagine an explanation of some of the things we can't explain. Moving lights, uh, back in time, that whole whole thing that astrophysicists wrestle with, science fiction wrestles with, but with an imaginative
1: explanation. (laughs) (laughs) Even Shatner. (laughs) is doing shat. <laughs> he doesn't even look, he looks like he's doing an impression of himself.
2: Explanations. <laughs> so, so Charles, you're, yeah. you're, you're a colleague, we both work in the same field. Yeah. And it, there's always some imagination at the frontier.
4: Oh, 100%. You and I both know that if all we did in the stereotypical sense was as scientists be in our white lab coats and do the same things over and over again that you expect that somebody who doesn't have any creativity to do, we would never get anywhere. We imagine answers to questions, whether we have the technical expertise yet or not to answer them. And it just turns out that in real science, we try to use our technical abilities to produce legitimate experiments, whereas in science fiction, they are freed from that constraint.
2: So, what they also do is not just imagine what science is in the future, in almost all cases, certainly the best cases, they're finding all the ways that new science affects culture, civilization, Humanity. That's right. And, of course, Ray Bradbury is famous for... The Martian Chronicles. Yeah. he Ray Bradbury was accused of saying, why are you always all dystopic <sighs> about the future? And you know what he said? He said, is this the future you, you're wishing we go to? He says, no, I write these futures so that we don't
4: go that's there.
2: That's oh, right. Oh, that's, that's, pretty, that's, yeah. that's, that's pretty cool. We that's have deep. to imagine
4: yeah. both the good and the bad in order to prepare for either one.
2: So... When you have science fiction and an imaginative palette, they're all, it's like a multiverse of options of where you can take the future of our our civilization. And I'm trying to think, you go back a few decades, let's say to the 80s, people were already making movies, dystopic movies about pandemics, uh, of course, nuclear destruction. We were still in the Cold War, uh, cloning, a little bit of cyberspace was in there. So it's just fun to think about what the creativity of a science fiction writer will do and how much we have to pay attention to. That is so depressing.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. Yeah, it
1: is. The 80s were a few
2: decades ago.
4: Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's nice that you mentioned Ray Bradbury. Just as much as scientists of our generation were inspired by his, say, Martian chronicles, he, too, was inspired by scientists who were just studying Mars at that time. So it all interplays together. It's a very, very nice combination of creativity and technology.
2: Well, up next in my interview with William Shatner, we'll be discussing race relations (gasps) in America through the lens of Star Trek when Star Talk continues.
5: Welcome back
2: to Star Talk from the American Museum of Natural History. We're featuring my interview with William Shatner, one of the great icons of the sci-fi series Star Trek. And it was created, as you know, by producer Gene Roddenberry back in the 1960s. Let's check it out. Were you self-aware of Roddenberry's larger mission statement, that he was trying to make a difference in the world? Well, both of those statements are suspect.
0: (laughs) (laughs)
3: Okay, okay. I'm not sure how much of a difference um, Roddenberry was trying to make in the world. He had a a wonderful idea, uh, no interference, uh, uh, live long and prosper, whatever the edicts were, except the crew did go down and interfere. That (laughs) (laughs) That was the... That resulted in a plot. <laughs> that was the story. If you didn't interfere, you'd just say, hi, guys, we'll just fly by. <laughs> yeah, right. Good going, guys. You know, So you had to interfere to have a plot. So we throw that out the window. But those ideas that were in the individual plots that each movie, each segment of the series was based on, those were great ideas. Half white, half black, yeah. half black, half white.
2: Fighting over the, the stupidity of racial fighting. In a time when the civil rights movement is in full swing. Right. And so this is a story in space forcing us to... Forcing us to
3: look at the inanity of of uh, of race relationships. Mm. That's science fiction at its best. So that idea... I don't know where it came from. I don't know who suggested that idea. And I would imagine Roddenberry had the last statement saying, this goes, we'll we'll, we'll do this story. So from that point of view, he was doing something. From my point of view of whether I was aware, I read that story. I thought, my gosh, what a wonderful story idea this is. How dramatic. They fight. I hate you
2: because you're black on that side. That's a great- And it's obvious I'm fighting you because I'm black on the other side. Yeah. (laughs) and That was clear to them for whatever reason. Right,
3: right. (laughs) So it was clear to everybody what a glorious story that was and we had so many others down the line uh, with other subjects in
2: mind. Uh, So yes, I was very much aware. So, do, do you remember that episode and what your reactions were to it?
1: Oh, my God, yes. And by the way, I'll just remember myself being a kid and watching that and going, when will this half-on-half crime end? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that,
4: that, that, episode, <laughs> that episode was entitled Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. And indeed, it was a, a very moving story. Mm-hmm. But the story was so compelling that it was almost impossible to act it in any subtle fashion. Everything was highly choreographed, was highly dramatized, because you couldn't actually do it in a normal, regular thought process. But you got to remember,
1: wasn't this the 60s? I mean, I don't know if you remember. I mean, I, I couldn't physically remember, but I... I've seen like PBS during Black History Month. It wasn't cool back then. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, the footage, the, the is, footage not good. is not good. Like so... dogs and water hoses yeah, so, and so
2: to have just to be able to broach the subject, yeah. I think, was extremely it, it brave. Just, it wasn't just black and white. The, there is more conflict between they and aliens. There was the Gorn fight yes. in the arena. Right. Maybe it was inevitable that you'd have to pull one off. Dug to the heart of sort of American society.
4: Right. All, all good television eventually does that.
2: So, Star Trek broke more ground on race relations. They featured the very first interracial kiss on American television. Oh my God, you're right. I, I had to ask Shatner about this. Let's check it out. Did you know at the time that your first kiss with Lieutenant Uhura was the first interracial kiss ever on television? I don't remember knowing whether it was the first. I mean, who keeps?
3: Uh, right. Most folks don't keep tabs on that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but I remember that there was discussion of uh, of it might cause uh, some controversy, and in uh, fact, I recall some station kiss- kissing the blue alien and the green alien. No problem. Uh, no, no problem. <laughs> the, boy, the black alien, problem. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, she's such a beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know she's she's a glorious uh, lady. So that how anybody could even uh, how's that even written? It, it was a subject matter. But I remember <clears throat> the potential for controversy.
2: So Chuck, how is it? How is it that <laughs> Star Trek can become the landscape on which you'd have the first interracial kiss? I, there might have been a half a dozen other shows that could have done it, mm-hmm. and they didn't. This did
4: it. It's because it's not on Earth. We can avoid all the trappings that keep us stuck in our mindsets if we're out in space. Our social boxes. That's right. And in fact, there's a great... Prison, st- social prisons. Social prisons. And there's a great story behind all of this that's often untold. Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura, uh, they were forced to kiss by aliens who were pushing them together. Because you know that's the only way a black person and a yes. white person could kiss in the 60s. <laughs>
1: but... <laughs> like Aliens made us do
4: it! <laughs> <laughs> but when they kissed, actually, the censors and the director wanted not to have that scene because it was too controversial. And so I said, okay, let's film two versions, one that actually has a kiss and one that doesn't. And William Shatner purposefully took so much time doing the kissing scene that there was only time left for one more take for the non-kiss. And he purposefully botched it so that the next day, everybody who would have censored it, they said, we have no choice, we must go with the actual kiss. Wow. So that's good. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine, though, an interracial kiss
1: being a big deal in this day and age. Me neither. I couldn't either. No. Well, <laughs> no. 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 We have families. We have families. <laughs> so... <laughs>
2: Here's 20 bucks. Get a room, <laughs> right? right, right. <laughs> well, up next, science fiction becomes science reality. When Captain Kirk, William Shatner, tells me about the first time he ever used a flip phone oh, when Star ooh. Talk returns.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx.
2: of the American Museum of Natural History. We're featuring my interview with Star Trek star William Shatner. Let's check it out. Did your p- performances on Star Trek sensitize you to the future of technology? I've always been
3: fascinated by the beauty of, of man-made uh, tools, uh, whether it's a chisel or a gun or a, a, uh, an engine or a watch. Or I love that refinement. I love the idea that man made tools from the beginning and then when I was asked to go into the, the lunar excursion module, uh, at the time the most uh, complex tool that man had ever made, I was totally aware of the millions of systems that were had to work for these uh, two guys to be safe. And yeah. I was and am fascinated by by those tools and the tools by which we observe nature, uh, the telescopes, the, the microscopes, the, the uh, various instruments that delve into the mystery of, uh, of how our world, how our universe works. That
2: so, fascinates me. So were you enchanted when you saw that one of the earliest cell phones was a flip phone inspired by that? I had one. They gave me one. Uh, <laughs> Motorola.
4: Motorola. Motorola Absolute gave me phone.
3: one and I... You gotta be like customer one. I was one customer one and the magic of having this phone in your hand and not having to find a, 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 a payphone and put quarters in and I was in a crowded airport with one of the new TAC phones, I think they called them. And StarTAC. 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 And, and I was making a call and people were passing by laughing. Like oh. couldn't figure out why they were left, <laughs> but I had a community. He hasn't like, shaken that character, <laughs> right.
2: right? They just <laughs> let him out.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so we look at the the list of technology Star Trek inspired. Clearly, in that. Particular case, the flip phone, mm-hmm. yeah. which was the communicator, I guess. Absolutely. Was, Absolutely. And, it, you know, it, it was cool. It was and like, the yeah.
1: funny thing is, it was seen as so futuristic back then, and now nobody has a flip phone. Yeah, if you had a yeah. flip
2: phone, it's like, what's wrong with you? Well, you mean like this flip phone? Oh,
1: no, you don't. <laughs> what?
4: Chuck Tru- to Enterprise.
1: <laughs>
4: Wait, uh, call the Enterprise. Chuck, you own that? You, uh, is that work? Chuck to Enterprise. Enterprise, do you read? Chuck... I do. Come in, (laughs) Tom. Actually, I do use this phone still. I I have a smartphone, but you notice I could open this with one hand. I can't dial with with one hand on my smartphone. Furthermore... Because you're incompetent with your smartphone. It's that simple. True. Furthermore... It is possible for me to use this to control the amount of input I get from this crazy world. Right. So I only get texts or voicemails when I want to. But, of course, when I need the actual power of a smartphone, I bring that reluctantly.
1: Well, let me tell you, Neil, I use this to control my teenage daughter. Because I say, if you don't do what I say, this is your phone.
2: (laughs) That must. She must. And she must tell those nightmare stories and at school. It, it works.
4: <laughs> I will take your iPhone and you get there. Well, it's also very economical. Costs way, way less to run something like this.
2: Stop trying to defend twenty-year-old technology, okay?
4: <laughs> just, just stop if, now. If it ain't broke. What? If it ain't broke, stop now. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, did you know? I didn't know this till recently. NASA, NASA's official website. Has a whole page on the science of Star Trek, really. And it's written by a NASA engineer. His name is David Batchelor. And I think we have him standing by right now, live on video. David, are you there? Welcome to Star Talk. Thank you. How do we know this is not some corner of your parents' basement you haven't moved out yet?
6: <laughs> this is my library. <laughs>
2: yeah, uh huh. In uh-huh. my
1: parents' basement.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so you wrote an article, The Science of Star Trek, and it's by far the most read article on that subject on the internet. You Just type it in, it goes straight there. And because Star Trek had this whole list of things, could you rank them by maybe most extraordinary but possible, like the warp drives or the impulse engines? Just, what's the start, the top three things we don't have, but you think one day we will? Ooh.
6: Well, I think we'll have impulse engines of some type, uh, and, and uh, antimatter is the thing you would need to power them. Because if you, know, if you think about a starship like the Enterprise, it was supposed to have the mass, something like the USS Enterprise. And if you were going to try to propel that up to you know, 90% of the speed of light or something, you would take titanic amounts of energy to do that. Uh, So antimatter is about the only thing that could possibly do it.
2: Which gives you pure annihilation of the mass, converting it entirely into into energy energy with equals mc squared. So where are they getting their antimatter?
6: Well, presumably they have a big production place somewhere. Uh, Hopefully it's very far away from Earth, because if you had a a containment accident, you could uh, blow away all Earth's atmosphere in short order with the kind of energy they're talking about, those starships.
2: I'm glad somebody's calculating these
6: risks.
2: (laughs) So how do you transport, in what vessel do you transport antimatter if on contact with matter it
6: annihilates? Well, there's a book by uh, Rick Sternbach and Mike Okuda called the Star Trek Next Generation Technical Manual, and it gives diagrams of all of the containments and things like that. So what you want to have is like hydrogen gas and it's uh, frozen into a solid form, and you just manipulate it with magnetic fields so it never touches anything. Oh,
1: okay, so it's, it's but a But there's also, if I'm not mistaken, there are also antimatter containment fields that they use as well, which is, is, surrounds the warp engine, right? Sure. Okay, True. I'm, like, I'm going, I'm done, I'm sorry. <laughs>
6: that's your, that's... <laughs> okay. And so, somehow they pass it through dilithium crystals. Exactly.
2: <laughs> and so what the hell are dilithium crystals?
6: Uh, It was a crystal that was made up as a plot element, kind of a MacGuffin in one of the stories. (laughs) Um, Have
2: you seen uh, the periodic table of fictional elements?
6: Oh, very interesting.
2: Yeah, it's very, it's got all the fictional, like unobtainium, go to every possible story ever told where they made stuff up. That element is in this periodic table. It's great. That's Um, cool. So tell me about cloaking devices.
6: Well, there's actually a little progress on that. They can, they can surround an object with a uh, specially engineered uh, exotic material and make light uh, go around it in a way. Uh, it doesn't work for every single wavelength of light, so, you know, there's still some visible wavelengths. Uh, it, I think I've invisible. seen pictures
2: where the light gets wrapped around the object and then comes right. back out the other side. Exactly. And, you, and you're working on this in your basement.
1: <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> where your parents'
2: library is. <laughs> Tell me about, there was some kind of acceleration damper so that when it accelerates from zero to warp speed, people aren't a pile of goo stuck to the back wall.
6: Right. What, right. Th- they, had to, they had to have something they called inertial dampers. Inertial dampers. And, uh, How did that work? Uh, have you ever looked at the uh, levitating frog? If you, if you Google levitating frog, you can see that there's actually a way to, to have a frog hover in space without going up or down in a magnetic field.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm just glad that I feel, fa- I feel sorry for the frog, but
2: I'm happy yeah. it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, thank you for teleporting your, your wisdom and knowledge My to pleasure. us. Up next, I break down the physics of space-time to Star Trek star, William Shatner, when star Talk returns. from the American Museum of Natural History, featuring my interview with American icon William Shatner, Captain Kirk himself. You know, he had a question for me about the universe. Let's check it out. What is space-time? You already know. You have never met someone at a place, unless it was also at a time. You have never met someone at a time, unless it was, okay, so so, so we- we, well, Well,
3: wait a minute. What happens to a photon from thirteen billion point eight hundred million years, that comes this way and enters my eye, so I can see it. Why? Where is where is space in, involved in that?
2: Um, it entered your eye at a time and at a place, right here. That's all that. That's all that that's matters that, here. Is, that's, is that is all, is that's that's all? all we're no, saying? Well, once you have formalized space and time, and know that they're conjoined then you can make all kinds of fascinating calculations well, with relativity. Well, what is all that? The train's going, and exactly. I'm walking down there. Yeah, that's I'm it. walking down the train. I'm walking on the and air. The the and the time And the change. What is all that? That's all the consequences of thinking about space and time as conjoint. But it's confusing. So not only is it the universe is under no obligation to make sense to William Shatner.
3: No, but William Shatner's under the obligation to make sense of the universe, as is you are and, doing. And, and 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 why do why do I slow down as I approach the speed of light? It does it apply to a photon no, thirteen. You, you, no, you want to freak out?
2: I don't, you know, I don't want your head to explode. You ready? Yeah. Okay? No, yeah. you're not ready. Are you ready? No, I'm ready. I'm okay. ready. Okay. The faster you go, the slower time ticks. Say that again? The faster you move, yeah. the slower That's time ticks you said, yeah? for you yeah. as seen by others. Right. As you approach the speed of light, time continues to slow down. Yes. At the speed of light, time stops, which means for a photon moving at the speed of light, when it is absorbed in your retina, it is the same instant it was emitted at the Big Bang 14 billion years ago. That's what I thought. That's, the that photon em- gets emitted, bam! It's in your, as far as it's concerned, it is it in is your the, eye in that same can instant. Can we measure that photon and, and yes. observe the Big Bang? I know <laughs> that that came from the Big Bang, and I'm watching it, and it's taken 13.8 billion years to reach you, but if you are that photon, it does not experience that time delay. What a great Easy. science fiction story, that. Is. Instantaneous.
5: <laughs> <Whoa>.
2: <laughs> that is awesome. So William Shatner's question takes us right up to Cosmic Queries yes. on yeah. And that's all tonight about the physics of space time. So, so Chuck, yes. you've you got some questions. Oh All right, go. so what
1: do you have? All right, here we go. Uh, this is Gabriel Fellin from Australia who says, a warp field is formed by contracting space time in front of a spacecraft and expanding it behind it. Could we say that in a loose theoretical sense, that is like riding a gravitational wave? Serves up. Chuck? No.
2: Okay. (laughs) Next question. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, wait, just to be clear, gravity waves move at the speed of light. If you want to ride the gravity wave, you're not doing any better than the speed of light. Okay.
4: Jerk. That's right. And what he was describing there was a uh, theoretical construct of creating a warp bubble. Warp bubble. And it doesn't work. But nevertheless, it's a cool thing to think Such about.
2: Such a buzzkill. Man. Oh, man.
4: Well, I'm not saying it won't work eventually. Who knows what great discoveries will come just around the corner. All right. Next. Next. If suddenly the sun disappeared, how long would it take
1: for the warped space around it to go back to normal? How would that adjustment be
2: felt on Earth? Ooh. I'm giving this eight minutes and 20 seconds. How about you, Charles?
4: Well, eight minutes and 20 seconds and our Earth would notice. Yeah. But the change in space-time there would be at the speed of light, right? The sun is about 853,000 miles across. So we take maybe four or five seconds for space-time where the sun was to come back to as if there were nothing there. Eight minutes and 20 seconds later, that effect come reaches Earth. Earth right. So
2: another way to say it is you can pluck the sun from the middle of the solar system. Right. And we wouldn't know about it. You would still bask in sunlight. Right. You would still orbit with no, not, nothing happening. Mm-hmm. 500 seconds later, bada-bing, we steep into darkness as we get cast at a tangent off into interstellar space. Mm-hmm.
1: So, Stanley, nice your day. answer yes. is you're going to die in eight minutes and 23 <laughs> seconds. Last question. This is from Meryl Gwen Speeder from Toronto, Canada. Would like to know this. Would a civilization in the galaxy one billion light-years away from us see the universe as one billion light-years younger than we are?
4: No. Well, there you have it. (laughs) The reason is the universe is expanding away from that galaxy exactly the same way that the universe is expanding away from our galaxy. So over there, one billion years, they would see us as being one billion years younger than we are today, but they would be the same age. Similarly, we see them as being one billion years younger, but we are the same age as we are now.
2: And my favorite such galaxy would be one that's 65 million light Light years years away, away. such that they looking upon us with their super-duper alien telescopes would witness events in real time unfolding on Earth 65 million years ago, because that light is only just now reaching them. And 65 million years ago, what was going down on Earth? An asteroid the size of Mount Everest slammed in the Yucatan Peninsula, although that's not what they called it back then, and taking out the dinosaurs. So they would bear witness to this. Right. And they would be seeing us in the past. Right. Just as we see them in their past. There you go. Yeah. So... Next up, William Shatner explains why being a Starship captain is a lot like being a football quarterback on
5: Star Talk. I live by routines, but I especially love my same day delivery routine with shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles Wilted lettuce? Nuh uh, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew. grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get shipped same-day delivery. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high.
0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Met Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
1: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good
2: at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader. Welcome back to star Talk, featuring my interview with William Shatner, Star Trek star. And I asked him about the unique look and design of the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. So let's check it out.
3: A guy by the name of uh, Herman Zimmerman designed that whole cabin.
2: There's a set designer for Star Trek. Yes. thought about. The ergonomics and the dynamics of a crew's movement.
3: Exactly. So the chair is in the center, the people are all around him to give him information,
2: uh, the people in front, the screen in there. Interesting. So anytime you look this way, it's always the same person giving you a certain kind of information. Absolutely. And I turn that way. Exactly. So it's, it's part of a rhythm of That's your. Right. So that uh, I was watching uh, uh,
3: Peyton Manning uh, work as a quarterback. Uh, That's just not who I thought you would mean, say in that sentence. No. <laughs> Peyton Manning, guiding the other players, uh, rehearsing them again and again. When I do this, you do that, I'm going to take three steps here and I can do it. You can imagine that in battle that this captain would say, all right, I'm going to turn here, I need that information, I'm going to turn here, you got to need that. And, and everything was set up so that he could make an informed decision. I, I lived that. So you a quarterback of the universe.
2: <laughs> You
4: like
2: that, okay? <laughs> 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 William Shatner, quarterback of the universe. So, you know, I, I couldn't le- Captain Kirk. I wasn't going to let him go until I had I had to ask him the perfunctory question: What was his favorite Star Trek episode? Ooh. And I did. Let's check it out. Okay. I, sorry, I have to ask you this. Uh, so, what was your favorite episode, <laughs> uh, Neil? That is so bad. I know it's the lamest That's, question ever. Is the worst. It is so lame. God, I'm. I'm not worthy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not worthy.
3: All right, my favorite episode. Well, I don't remember them too well. Okay, mm-hmm. I didn't see many, although I don't like to watch me on camera. <clears throat> but there was one that uh, going back in time. Uh, where you try and Just so, so you have a, a tear here on this. Uh, I'm crying over the question. <laughs> right there, good. Uh-huh. Um, there was one episode where we went back in time. I think it was called City Across the River. It City on the Edge of Forever. City on the Edge of yes. Forever. Listen to you.
2: I remember. involved time travel.
3: But what is time travel? But a yearning to go back to... a. A past that was brighter and better, or something that you could alter. There's something so so basic about all human beings saying, "If I could just go back to that moment and change it, I I wouldn't have done what I did." So I remember thinking that uh, that back uh, going back in time and having a, an affection for that moment. It was a lovely story and a nostalgic story. It had touched you. So I I might point to that as one of them. Good and of your six or seven eight movies, which one of the Star Trek? Well, series? I thought Star Trek Five was brilliant. Five. Yeah, Five was going
2: back uh, to God, trying to find God. Okay, uh, which one did the best out of that? probably uh was it four, they were think? all four yeah. but they were all in that 100,000 100 million dollar thing. Yeah, 4 was that was dubbed save the whales. That was the save, save the, the whales, whales yeah. episode. So again, it was going back in time yeah. and interacting right. out of place. Exactly. Uh, that's reintroducing a whale. Yeah, 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 to the future mm-hmm. from the past. Right. That was, I, that was my favorite of the set. I I have very simple you know storytelling needs.
3: <laughs> you you deal you deal in such <laughs> mysticism anyway.
2: Well' up next on Star Talk, featuring my interview with American icon William Shatner, Captain of the USS Enterprise. and Star Trek today is more popular than ever, in part, I think because of the reboot by J.J Abrams. and I, I had to ask William Shatner what was his take on this new movie and the whole reboot of the series let 's check it out.:
3: I think JJ. Abrams is a wonderful director and wonderful imaginative writer what we found in the movies we made that they would make 100 million dollars and none of the movies made more than 100 million dollars
2: so the budget was limited oh yeah once you know those numbers reliably everything gets pre predefined the budget is already it's already in defined place. Yeah, so yeah.
3: so there's not much room for for special effects to make this movie when jj got a hold of it he must have decided that the way to increase the revenue was to go and make a ride, and give the special effects uh, full emphasis. Spend the money it's a on the fiction ride. ride. It's the ride, and the characters, as a result, I think, mm-hmm. suffered somewhat. But those movies are uh blockbuster box, off, uh, box office uh sensation it's refreshed yeah. the franchise now the characters act in a somewhat different uh fashion than they would have uh, uh had uh, roddenberry been issuing his edicts but the proof is in the popularity of the movies
2: Woo! <sighs> charles yes. yes if roddenberry rebooted the movie today, What would? It, how, why would it be any different? He'd have a big budget, high special effects?
4: I think William Shatner here is not taking into account, perhaps the way he should, the fact that it's much harder to develop characters in an hour and a half or two hours than it is over two or three seasons. Uh, in reality, J.J. Abrams has done a lot within what time was available. But it is true, there's a substantial ride going on. So what you're really saying if I may
1: is William Shatner is being da, no, a no, little no, bit no, of no, a no, hater. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs>
2: Just a <laughs> no, little no, bit. No, no, no. But wait, wait no. but in the end he said, "Look, it's making Have
1: money." A shake a little no, hate right. on this. He's that's in the right. he's in the
4: business. If that's it's right. making money, it's making money. That's right. Now, yes. when Gene Roddenberry actually did get a chance to reboot the Star Trek franchise with Star Trek the Next Generation, yes. for the first several seasons he was still involved in it pretty substantially. Gene Roddenberry didn't give edicts so much as he gave a vision. So,
2: uh, so Star Trek has gone beyond just the multiple reincarnations of the TV series, the original set of movies, yes, and then the next set of movies, yes. It also spilled into fan fiction, mm. a whole other dimension, internet-based dimension of storytelling, absolutely. Where people feel maybe it's kind of the internet's version of a multiverse. <laughs> yes, right. So it's a multiverse where fans get to explore plot lines never right. intended but they have to have some plausibility otherwise they don't work as fan fiction and That's guess right. what
1: some of that fan fiction actually gets adopted into star trek stories
2: and i think one of them is like uh, captain kirk and spock have they have like a relationship once you go yeah. vulcan you never go back <laughs> 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 neil are you a big enough fan that you would have a plot line i guess if i had to have fiction i i would want to see captain kirk fight jean Luc picard Ooh. I just want to see that. Because Kirk did his own fighting. That would be awesome. And and Picard didn't. That's true. So I just want to see how that would play.
1: And then they have to play that music.
2: (laughs) Well, before we wrap up this segment, we're going to catch up with my good friend, Bill Nye, the science guy, to get his take on the enduring power of Star Trek. Let's check it out.
6: The Unisphere. In 1964, it represented our shrinking globe and our expanding universe. Now, let me tell you something. I was here at the World's Fair, and it was the coolest place. This optimistic view of the future through science and technology. And when Star Trek came along, it took that view to a whole other level or another quadrant of the galaxy. With each character, becoming a metaphor for the tribal conflicts that we still have here on Earth. Now, in Star Trek, they, they didn't stay on Earth with conflicts between countries. No, they had conflicts between entire planets, each one a unique place in space. And it was Captain Kirk especially who worked hard to resolve those conflicts. So thank you. That optimistic view is still with us. Thank you, Star Trek. Okay, Neil, you have the con. Nye out. Bill Nye. I look
2: at Star Trek as a vision of the future, and there's one thing that was persistent in every episode. It was, at the end of the day, no matter what you saw, there was some dose of morality. Storytelling is about other worlds, ideally better worlds, worlds where People treat each other more kindly, where we are better shepherds of our own planet. And that is a cosmic perspective. You've been watching Star Talk. I've been your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, and as always, I bid you to keep looking up.
0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
1: of a detour. Look around. You can find cars like these on Autotrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Autotrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.